we in our own ability cannot stand in the face of adversity. We could never find the strength to trust without faith because we don't have the capability to see above the trials that we meet, to keep our eyes focused on the King while counting the situation we are currently experiencing as joy. Faith works. This is the essence of James. We don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. Without faith, without works, we too quickly become that man in the mirror staring at his face, but then forgets the way he looks as soon as he turns away. But with faith, with works, we stay steadfast on this journey, progressively sanctified, knowing we'll be perfected once we reach the other side. Faith works. This is the cry of James, that faith apart from works can never be sustained, that in every day and in every way we should see this truth proclaimed because it's faith that makes us doers of the word, not just hearers. It's faith that keeps us humble, not proud. It's faith that directs our tongues to bless, not to curse. It's faith that causes us to show mercy, not judgment. It's faith that leads us to true religion, not its empty substitute. And it's faith that's causing us to preach the good news to every tribe, tongue, and nation with every breath that we breathe. And it will be faith that causes us to worship our God for all eternity. This is the message of James. Faith works. Are you ready? All right, we're going to jump into the book of James. Let me start with this, though. Uh, raise your hand if you know who Seth Curry is. Does that name ring a bell, Seth Curry? Okay, who is Seth Curry? Basketball player. Who does he play for? Wrong. Anybody know who he plays for? He plays for the Mavericks. He plays for the Mavericks. He doesn't play for the Warriors. Uh, he is a bench player. He comes off the bench for the Dallas Mavericks. Um, but he has this brother who plays for the Warriors. And his brother, Steph Curry, is a multiple-time champion. He's an MVP. He's probably the greatest shooter the game has ever seen. He makes a bazillion dollars a year. His brother makes a little bit of money by NBA standards and uh, plays a few minutes every game, but he still gets to see jerseys that say Curry on the back, even though they're not for his team that people are wearing in the crowd. Um, and did you know that not only is uh, Seth Curry living in the shadow of his brother, Steph, but they're both living in the shadow of their dad, Del Curry, who was a great NBA player in his own right a generation ago, Right. So that's a family from the NBA like that. There's an NFL family like that too. Who's that? The Manning family, right? So there's this guy, Eli Manning. Now, bear with me, those of you who don't know anything about sports and you're already thinking, can I go to sleep now? Just bear with me, okay? This guy, Eli Manning, he's the quarterback for the New York Giants and uh, he is a two-time Super Bowl winner and a two-time Super Bowl MVP. He's been in the league for... 15 years, something like that, and is this tremendously, tremendously gifted football player, and he's the third best quarterback in his family. 
Because he has this older brother, Peyton Manning, that maybe you've heard of, who goes down in history as in the discussion for the greatest quarterback of all time, or certainly in the top three or four. And And both of them have a dad who is a Hall of Fame quarterback by the name of Archie Manning, right? So so Eli, even though he's incredibly great, if if people ran into that whole family at a restaurant, he'd be the last one asked for his autograph. He's lived his whole life in the shadow of his dad and his older brother. And did you know they have another brother, Cooper? Cooper is also a great football player, but he was severely injured in college and therefore missed out on a pro career. So Cooper's the only guy in the family who doesn't have a a, a ring or a Hall of Fame jacket or something like that, and he lives in the shadow of all of them. Now, I bring up those examples. Let me bring up one more for those of you who don't like sports. I'll bring up one that you probably know. You've heard the name George Washington, right? But did any of you know anything about his younger brother, Herman Washington? That's because I just made him up. <laughs> but I'll bet you if he had a brother named Herman, you would have never heard of him, right? Because what, what must it be like to grow up in the shadow of George Washington, right? There's, there's, there's no way you're going to measure up, right? So um, it turns out that uh, there was some people who had to live in the shadow of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, his brothers lived in his shadow, now, some of you are looking at me with a puzzled look like, uh, I thought Mary was supposed to be a virgin, and how does he have brothers? But uh, the Bible tells us multiple times that Jesus had both brothers and sisters. You know, the scripture says that Joseph kept her a virgin until the child was born, implying that she was not a virgin after the child was born. And then you have these siblings. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13. And let's start to get a glimpse of this. Matthew, first book of the New Testament, go to chapter 13, and join me in verse 53 of Matthew chapter 13. Listen to what it says. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So Jesus has at least four brothers and we don't know how many sisters, right, that are listed here. And these brothers especially show up at multiple times throughout the gospels. Uh, For instance, in Mark chapter three, Uh, basically he's doing ministry in his hometown and it says that his relatives thought he had lost his mind. It's right at the beginning of his ministry and he's going around telling people he's the son of God and people are freaking out thinking this guy has lost his mind. And so his brothers come and try to get him and pull him out of the public square so that he won't keep making a fool of himself. And then later in John chapter seven, verse five, we're told that his brothers did not believe in him. So he had these brothers, and we, I don't know how you picture this, but I would think you grow up, and, and you grow up with Jesus, and a lot of jokes have been made about that, you know, and he never does anything wrong, and you always look bad by comparison, but actually, it would have been an amazing thing to grow up with. Imagine an older brother who is perfect in his love toward you, an older brother who never sins against you, 
And so these guys grew up with Jesus. They watched him. And yet still, when he began his ministry, began to preach, began to travel, began to do miracles, they did not believe in him. By the time of the crucifixion, apparently by then Joseph had already died. And so we have Mary there at the crucifixion, but none of his brothers are there, apparently. If they were there, he didn't trust them. Because from the cross, he gives responsibility to John, the apostle, to take care of his mother Mary when he's gone. And so he has these brothers, but apparently these brothers, James and Judas and what else were their names? Uh, the other two. Yeah, Joseph and Simon. These guys, they, they, didn't, um, they didn't believe in him. And so something must have changed Somehow, James, this brother of Jesus, who had never believed in him, James, this brother of Jesus, who was embarrassed by him, who tried to get him to stop making such a um, spectacle of himself, somehow James, the brother of Jesus, went through a dramatic change. Take your Bibles and go to the book of James. And if you haven't found it yet, it's in the back of your New Testament, almost to the back of the Bible, there's the book of Hebrews, which is a really big book, and right after Hebrews is the book of James. And so go to the book of James, go ahead and put a bookmark there, because we're going to be there for a while. This book, James, is written by James, the brother of Jesus. And listen to how he describes himself. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He introduces himself as James, not James the pastor, not James the brother of Jesus, he introduces himself as James, a bondservant of Christ. He calls himself Christ's servant. So obviously something dramatic happened to change his mind because all that time he didn't believe. So how did a younger brother who didn't believe, a younger brother who was embarrassed by his older brother, become somebody who referred to himself as a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Something significant must have happened. All right, keep a finger in James. Go back to the left and find 1 Corinthians chapter 15. After Romans, you get to 1 Corinthians. If you go to 2 Corinthians, you went too far. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're gonna pick it up in verse three. This is Paul's description. Paul writing to the Corinthians says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles." So after the resurrection of Jesus, he goes around appearing. We know that the, the women saw him there by the tomb after he rose. We know that he saw the apostles. Paul tells us that he appeared to 500 people in one time in one place. And he says he appeared to James. Somehow, some way, he decided that, is, that only a few people were going to get to see the resurrected Jesus and one of them was going to be James. And so James, his brother, got to experience the resurrected Jesus, got to, got to see him, got to talk to him, got to touch him. 
<clears throat> and so he becomes a believer at this point because apparently an encounter with the risen Christ can really change your life. Amen. Amen? Amen? How many of you know that to be true personally, right? An encounter with the risen Christ can really change everything. So this guy, James, after seeing Christ risen, goes from being a doubter, goes from being a skeptic to being a follower of Jesus. And before we know it, he has become a pastor. And James becomes the lead pastor of the church of Jerusalem, first church of Jerusalem, first church, just first church. The first church was in Jerusalem and James was their pastor. Now think about that for a second. That means that the apostles were members of James's congregation. So I don't know if you've ever you know, done any public speaking or anything, but as a pastor, as a preacher, um, I never get nervous when I stand up to preach in front of you guys because I'm comfortable here. I trust you guys, and, and I feel like I know you guys, and this is my home church, and I feel fine. I don't sit there while we're singing, shaking, and going, oh my gosh, I have to preach. That doesn't ever happen to me. But sometimes when I preach at a big event somewhere else where it's not my people, I get nervous. But the thing that makes me the most nervous is if there is somebody in the audience um, that I really look up to. I remember one Sunday I was up here, I stood up and, you know, opened my Bible, welcomed people, and, and I looked out, and sitting right over there was my seminary theology professor. <laughs> and, and immediately, I just gasped inside. And I was like, oh, dear God, is my sermon theologically sound today? <laughs> and it made me really uncomfortable. So imagine James... James, when he's preaching, he looks out and there's Peter. Over here is John and his family, right? And, and the apostles are spread among his congregation. James, the one who was a doubter, James, the one who didn't believe until he met the risen Christ, actually becomes the pastor of what is, without question in my mind, the most significant church that has ever existed, the most significant local church ever. We read the book of Acts, right? And it tells us about this church, right? That, that the apostles were there, signs and wonders were taking place among them. There were people getting saved, thousands being swept into the kingdom at a time, more and more being added to their number every day. It was this amazing, amazing church. And James, of all people, becomes the pastor of that church. So he had trouble believing at first. But I'll tell you this, once he believed, he was all in. He was 100% in. And he was martyred for his faith only 30 years after the time that Jesus was crucified. And, and he, this James, he penned the New Testament book that I think is the single most practical book for Christian living you're gonna find in the scripture. Um, and I am so excited to have a chance to teach through James um, because it's had such an influence on my life. It is, it is without question the book of the Bible that has had the most practical impact on my daily living of any book in the Bible. And I relate to James, and some of you might too. I'm a little bit like him. I, I knew about Jesus as a kid. I just didn't have a relationship with him. I knew about Jesus. I just didn't put my trust in him. I didn't put my faith in him. I, I never really had had an encounter with the risen Lord. But when I was 14 years old and I had an encounter with the risen Lord and the Holy Spirit came into my life, I was utterly changed. 
and I began to walk on an entirely different path. I was all in from day one, and I relate to James in that way. I think the other thing that I appreciate about the book of James is that when I did become a Christian, I'm a freshman in high school, mind you, our, our youth group um, has, like most youth groups, like our youth group here, a bunch of college-age uh, people who are building into the teenagers, right, discipling us. And there was this guy, he's a dear friend of mine to this day, his name is Glenn Perry, and he was a college student when I was a freshman in high school. And Glenn was gonna disciple myself, my brother, and our friend, the three of us together. And we all came to Christ at the same time. We're all brand new believers. And we said to Glenn, well, what do we do? How do, how do, you, how do you do this Christianity thing? He goes, we should probably start reading the Bible. We said, great, what, what, do, we, what do we read? He goes, how about this? Why don't we all memorize the book of James together? And we said, okay. Because we had no idea Christians don't do that. We had no idea that it was weird to memorize a whole book of the Bible. He just said it like it's a normal thing. And I had no idea that everybody wasn't walking around memorizing whole books of scripture. So from the first month of my discipleship following Jesus, what I did was I memorized a, a verse of James every day until I had memorized the entire five chapters. Myself, my brother, my friend, and Glenn, the four of us, memorized the book of James together. And it probably took us six months. And, and I, don't remember, um, I don't remember ever questioning it. I don't remember ever wondering about it. I just remember learning it. And so I probably didn't read any other thing in the Bible for the first six months of my Christianity. I just memorized James. And it's in intensely practical. And so God was just poking me constantly as I was memorizing these scriptures and he was going, hey, Doug, you need to clean up your act in this area. Hey, Doug, I wanna change you in this area. Hey, Doug, you need to repent of this. Hey, Doug, you need to build this into your life. And just incredibly practical, I just started putting uh, the, the book of James into my head and I praise God for it, really. To this day, it's the only full book of scripture I memorized beginning to end because somebody told me, hey, people don't do that. I went, oh, thank God, right? <laughs> And so, and, but I'll tell you this, there's a Rolodex in my brain. If you're, if you're too young to know what a Rolodex is, ask an old person. There's a Rolodex in my brain that when I'm counseling someone or when I'm going through a challenge or when I'm preparing a sermon or a Bible study that I can just thumb through and those verses pop into my memory and I'm able to draw on those things for ministry and to, to live for Christ. So the book of James has incredible, incredible significance to me. And seriously, you know what I feel like? You ever have like a favorite movie that you just love, 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 and then you meet a friend who's never seen it, and you're like, oh my gosh, you gotta watch this with me. And then you don't even watch the movie, you just watch them, right? Like, are they gonna <laughs> laugh at the funny parts, right? And, and all of that. That's how I feel about preaching through the book of James with you guys. I can't wait to see what God's gonna do in our lives. But I gotta start with a warning. The warning is this. James pulls no punches. James is not interested in sparing your feelings. So I tell you that right up front because I don't need you to send me these emails, okay? Send them to James. James at heaven.com. That's where you send it. 
If you have a concern that you're being a little rough, James, you're stumping on our toes a little too much, talk to James, don't talk to Pastor Doug. All I'm saying is he is not going to shy away from offending you. He is not gonna shy away from talking to us about some things that we would prefer God not talk to us about. He's not afraid to hurt our feelings. So he understood that in the first century as the church is just getting its footing, that if it's gonna have any credibility, if the gospel is gonna have any credibility, it has to be more than a sermon. It has to be more than a philosophy. It has to be more than a new doctrine or a dogma. It has to be changed lives. And if people hear this new message, but they don't see the changed lives that reflect that new message, they're not gonna believe it. And so James decided he was gonna go straight for our actions. And he talks to us about what to do because he wants there to be changed lives so that people will understand that the gospel is true. And that holds absolutely as true today as it did 2,000 years ago. I mean, the number one thing that we hear when people talk about negatively about Christians is that they don't like all the hypocrisy. You, you say one thing, but you don't live that way. You judge other people, but then you do your own. We hear so much of that. And in many cases, it's just an excuse for people who don't want to deal with what God's convicting them of. I understand that. But it has been a massive problem in Western Christianity that people hear what we have to say, but then they look at our lives and go, I don't see it. And so James is addressing that issue, and it is going to make us uncomfortable. He is going to talk about things we'd rather not deal with, and he's going to tell us to do something about it. Some, uh, some books are very theological. Some books are very doctrinal. James is very practical. So he's going to tell us what to do, and he's going to stick a finger in our face and he's gonna make it loud. And some of the themes in James are repeated over and over and over again. And we're gonna come back to them again and again and again. He actually, God actually in the book of James commands us. In the Greek, the command uh, is very obvious. Whenever there's a command in the Greek language, it's a certain way. And he commands us over and over and over. In fact, there's 108 verses in the book of James and there are 54 distinct commands. So every other verse, God is grabbing you by the shirt and shaking you and going, do this differently, okay? So it is gonna be a little tough at times. But if we will trust God, if we will not be afraid to let God's word get into our lives, if we will respond to those commands, then God is gonna do something to change our lives. Because listen, if God loves us as much as he says he does, then when he makes a command, it's not to destroy us, it's to free us. It's to enable us. So Jesus said, I came that they might have life and that more abundantly. The, the Jews of that day, they were accustomed to the rabbis just piling on responsibilities. Do this, don't do that. Here's a new rule, here's a new rule, here's a new commandment, here's a new rule. And constantly just throwing all these rules. Jesus comes and Jesus says, listen, if you come to me, here's what you're gonna find. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He didn't come to heap burdens on us, right? Jesus comes to set us free. So when we see commands like this from God in scripture, we need to understand we don't need to be defensive. 
We need to realize that God is trying to open up our lives to his blessing. He's trying to give us the abundant life that Jesus died for us to give. He's gonna ask us to make changes in our lives if we take the book of James seriously. So, you still willing to do this? You good? All right, let's get back to James chapter one. James chapter one, verse one. <clears throat> James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. In these ancient letters, the greetings come at the beginning. We sign our letters at the end. Love you very much. Hope to see you soon. Love, Doug. And in these ancient letters, they put those greetings at the beginning. So James identifies himself right off the bat. And, and as I said, he doesn't really identify himself as the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. He doesn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us not only who he is, but who his original audience is. He's writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now, what nation do we know that has 12 tribes? Israel. He's writing to Jews. And he is specifically writing, as we read the book and see the context, he's specifically writing to Jews who have accepted the Messiah as Lord and Savior. So these are completed Jews. These are Christians from a Jewish background. And he's writing to them, and specifically these Jews to whom he is writing, they're not the ones in his church. They're the ones who are dispersed abroad. They're, they're spread out into other countries. So he's, he's writing this letter that is very different than a lot of the letters that we see of Paul, where he writes to the Philippians, to the Ephesians, to the Thessalonians. James is writing to these Jewish believers who are dispersed and are living far away. Now, what does James have to do with these dispersed Jewish Christians? Why does he have an interest in them in the first place? Well, most of them had been part of his congregation. He was their pastor. See, something really crazy happens in the book of Acts. If we go, just start with Matthew 28, where Jesus is about to ascend, and he says to his followers, um, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then at the same time in Acts 1.8, he says, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem is the city. Judea would be like the region or the county, let's say, or state. And then Samaria is the bordering country. And then the uttermost parts of the earth. He says there's going to be this outward movement. And you guys, you people here in Jerusalem, you're going to be my witnesses. You're the ones who are going to bring the gospel to all of these people. Now, what did they do? They did what most of us tend to do. They stayed where they were comfortable. They stayed exactly where they were. First of all, who wants to leave that church? That is the greatest church. Everything great is going on. It's like you guys come to church and you're like, well, is it gonna be today? Are we gonna hear from Pastor Doug or Pastor Byron or Pastor Dave? They came, they're like, are we gonna hear from Peter today? Are we gonna hear from John? Is anybody gonna get raised from the dead today? Like that's what they went to church expecting. That was their church. 
And the, the book of Acts describes that church and all of its power and all of its glory and all the amazing things that are happening. It says that they were even popular with the unbelievers in the community. Everybody respected them. The church was growing like crazy. It was just this awesome movement to be a part of. Why would anybody want to leave that? And so sometimes God helps. See, one of the things I've learned in life, and I bet you can, can you confirm this, Comfort is often the enemy of progress, right? If you lay in a hammock all the time, you're just going to get fat. You're not going to change the world. And God actually allowed a persecution to happen to the church there in Jerusalem. You can find this in the book of Acts, chapter 7 and 8. Basically, there's this guy, Stephen, who is preaching for Christ, and they put him to death. They execute him in the town square. They, they make an example of him and stone him to death. He dies this horrible death, and there's this guy, Saul, one of the Jewish priests who is there as a part of that execution team. And then chapter 8 introduces us to this guy, Saul, and says, Saul was going around the whole area, and wherever he could find people who were followers of Jesus, he was either putting them in jail or putting them to death. And so this persecution arises in the church in Jerusalem, and it's try they're trying to stomp it out. And so when that persecution arises, people ran for their lives. And those people are the recipients of James's letter, the 12 tribes who have been dispersed abroad. They're now gone. Listen, these Jewish believers, they gave up everything. They, they lost their homes. They lost their families. They lost their jobs. They lost everything so they could follow Jesus. And now they're living in foreign lands where they don't speak the language, they don't know the customs, they don't have any family, they don't have any support system. And James says, I've got to call, I've got to encourage these guys. And so he writes this letter so that it will be copied and shared and spread among these little groups of Christians who are dispersed all around. Now, pick it up in verse two. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He just jumps right into this topic that is very hard for us to hear about. He gets into this subject of trials. And he starts talking about suffering and joy in the same sentence. And it's really weird. So he starts off his letter talking about suffering and joy. So I need some help. Vanessa, can you help me? Will you come up here for a second? I know you, you were saying, I, I hope to get to stand up in front of a crowd today. Okay, so everybody cheer wildly for Vanessa. Okay, so come and stand over here with me. So this is Vanessa. Now, Vanessa is going to be our object lesson, okay? You are joy, okay? That's it. So you need a big smile on your face, right? Maybe some jazz hands, right? Whatever it is. There you go, okay? So Vanessa represents joy to us, okay? So stay right there, joy. Now, we need somebody to represent trials. Oh, Ricky, come on up. Ricky is going to represent trials, okay? So you don't even have to cheer for him. He just comes up, okay? So... Look menacing, okay? Try to look like terrifying and scary, right? So I don't, you know, growl or something like that. Yeah, like that, okay? So he represents trials. So 
we're going to be thrilled about joy, right? And then when we see trials, we're going to say, right, you got it. Isn't this great? Okay, so here's the thing. We tend to think that joy and trials are two completely separate things and that if there are trials, there cannot be joy. So we gotta keep them at completely opposite ends of the spectrum. We're either having trials or we're having joy, right? But James comes along and says, no, 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 it's not exactly like that. Actually, joy and trials were made to coexist. They're made to be together. So where's your smile? Come on, Joy, come over here. And so now we got Joy standing here. As she moves closer to trials, her joy does not get diminished, James says. We think that if there's trials in our lives, then our joy is gonna get diminished. As trials get closer and closer and closer to us, James says, keep your hands off her. James says, (laughs) James says that actually these two things, joy and trials, were made to go together that actually our joy increases in the midst of our trials. Isn't this cute, right? (laughs) So, So that our joy increases in the midst of our trials, James said, and that is so different than what we think. And then he introduces a third character to this story, maturity. So Byron, you're gonna represent uh, maturity. And you could just assume it's because of your character, okay? All right, so come on up here, maturity, and I want you to just put your arms around these two, okay? This is the picture that God has in mind. He says that when our life endures various trials, that we can actually have greater joy because we're going through those trials, and that if, instead of running from those trials, we will embrace those trials and rejoice in the midst of our trials, we can become mature. That's what God is trying to do. It's very different than anything we think of. All right, let's hear it for these guys. Go sit down. Thanks. You see, in essence, James is saying, if you want to be mature, it's only going to happen through various trials. So um, if you're going through various trials, rejoice. I told you you wouldn't want to hear this. But let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you something you already know. If you're not going through a trial right now, you probably just recently came out of a big one. And if, if you didn't just come out of one and you're not going through one, then there's probably one that starts tomorrow. So you can look forward to that, right? Am I wrong about that or is that not everybody's experience? You know what? Guys, we live in a broken world. We live in a world that is marred by sin. We live in a world that theologians call fallen. Because of the fall, because sin entered the picture, there is brokenness, there is pain, there is suffering, there is disease, there is death, there's, there's broken relationships, there's injustice. All of these things exist in the world in which we live and you don't need me to lecture you about that because you live in this world too. And you know that you cannot get through life without enduring various trials. If you happen to manage to do that, you will be the first person ever. Jesus had a ton of trials, didn't he? So there's no way for you to avoid trials in this world. So whenever I teach on this passage, I always want to do some audience participation. It says that we should consider all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, 
Audience participation. Raise your hand if you would love to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? Okay, hands down. Now raise your hand if you want to endure various trials. See, the only, the only reason some of you real smart people raise your hand there is because you know what I just said, that without the trials, you're not going to be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And none of us wants trials, but we all want to become complete. We all want to become mature. We all want to have God shape us into the image that he designed us to live in. But James is telling us that whenever we go through various trials, God is planning to use those trials to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now let's just put on our theologian caps for a second and let's remember what's true about God. Here's a few things. God is sovereign, right? That means he cannot be thwarted. That means nobody can come in and overrule him. That means he has all authority, right? God is also good. And this is not just like he's kind of good sometimes and not so good other times. No, his nature is perfectly good, perfectly holy. So there's no compromise to that. There's no days when he's in a bad mood and therefore he's not good. His nature is good, right? It also tells us that he is love. His nature is the very essence of love. So we have this uh, sovereign, good, holy, loving God who, by the way, is also all-powerful, right? Now, if you worship a God like that, you're serving a holy, good, sovereign, all-powerful God, and still you're going through really serious trials, what does that tell us? I think it tells us that this really good, all-powerful God must love you enough to allow these trials in your life because he's going to use them for some purpose. See, Here's what we maybe don't like to think about. I, you can think of whatever trial you like, a terrible disease, a divorce, some abuse, whatever injustice you can think of. And here's what you have to know. The scripture is clear about this. Because God is all-powerful, because God is sovereign, there is nothing that ever happens on earth that God doesn't either cause or actively allow. And that's hard. That's hard to face. I would rather say, oh no, you know, God was maybe taking a nap that day when cancer showed up. But that's not the case. The scripture is very, very clear about this. So that means that even the terrible suffering of trials is either, in some cases, caused by God. There are times when there are trials that are the very will of God for your life. Don't believe me, just ask Jesus, who when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane said, please let this cup pass from me. Never let not my will but yours be done and then went to the cross. So there are times when God actually brings trials into our lives for some purpose that is greater than we understand. And there are other times, and this is most of the time, where God allows trials into our lives. So, you know, we see in the book of Job that even Satan can't attack you unless God allows him to attack you. So, um, God doesn't bring temptation. God is not the author of evil, but God does allow, in a broken world, trials to come into our lives. So, he must have a plan. Why would he do that? Here's a verse that you're familiar with, probably many of you. Romans chapter 8 Verse 28. 
So if you go, if you find the book of Acts, right after Acts is Romans, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, does that say that all things are good? No, it says that God causes all things, good, bad, or indifferent, and works them together for good. And he promises to do that. Now, what is this good that God is trying to accomplish by allowing difficulty into my life? I'm really glad you asked. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. He has predestined us to become like Jesus. So when he causes all things to work together for good, don't, you don't get to define good. God defines good. And, and it's not good as meaning, well, you know, I lost my job. I guess God now has to give me a job that pays better than my last job. That's what might be my definition of good, but it might not be God's. God tells us his definition of good, that I would be conformed to the image of his son. And so as I endure these trials, I'm shaped and molded more into the image of Christ. Now, before we lock this up for today, let me be really clear about something. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Let's be very clear. Uh, I am not suggesting, James is not commanding us to pretend we're happy even when we're suffering. He's not saying just put on a happy face and fake it till you make it. That is not what he's saying. He is saying that even in the midst of your trial, you can experience genuine joy. Joy is not a happy feeling that makes me tingle inside and I just can't stop giggling. Joy is a feeling that, that shines the brightest when our trials are the darkest because it's in those trials that we have this deep abiding sense of God's presence of God's power, of God's love for us, that God has a plan for us, and that we don't have to lose hope because we have Christ. That's joy. Remember last week we talked about this where Paul and Silas went to Philippi and they did a little bit of ministry, and for that they got beaten in the town square within an inch of their lives. Now they're beaten and bloodied and broken, and they're dragged into a dungeon and they're put in the stocks and they're locked up in chains and left. And what do they do next? They begin to sing praises to God. Now, do you suppose they were happy at that moment? Do you suppose they were in a good mood? You think they were enjoying their day? I don't think so. But they had joy that, that said to them, even though we're locked up, Paul said it in many places, it is an honor to be considered worthy to suffer for Christ's sake and to have a relationship with God where God is doing something great here. And they just began to worship God and it was in the midst of that worship that God did the miraculous. That's joy. It's not the same thing as happiness. And Paul writes in Philippians 4, we don't have time to get there, but you can, you can write this in your notes and look it up this week. Philippians 4, 4 through 7, that's that well-known passage, those same Philippian people. He says, listen, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. He tells us to be thankful even when we're feeling anxious, to express appreciation to God, even when things are going badly for us, because it's in the context of that that we can tap into the real joy that comes only in knowing Christ. 
This is a life-changing principle. Trials are a reason for joy because they're the pathway to maturity. But what do most of us do when we encounter various trials? He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And by the way, he doesn't say when you encounter a trial. He says various trials. This is like one wave after another. We've all been there, right? There's some weeks, months, years in our lives where it just feels like whatever can go wrong goes wrong. And as soon as we get our head above water from one problem, the next wave hits. He's talking about various trials. When you're encountering a deluge of trials, he says, that we should count it all joy. Um, But most of us, when we have trials, what do we do? We run away. We, we say, if the trials are over there, I'm going over here. I don't want to be where the trials are. I got to get as far from the trials as possible. How many times have I missed an opportunity for God to mold me and shape me into who he wanted me to be because I was so afraid of the trial that I ran away and then God had to find me there and bring some other trial and maybe I ran away from that one too. We tend to run We tend to grumble and complain. We tend to get angry with God and blame him. Say, God, I thought you were trustworthy, but if this is how you're gonna treat me, then I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not speaking to you, God. And it really, that's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They they ate the fruit, they sinned. Suddenly they were ashamed. And what did they do? Hid from God. That's what we tend to do when we encounter various trials. When are we going to start seeing our trials the way God sees them? Every trial the Lord allows in your life is like a love letter from God to you. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I love you just the way you are, but I love you too much to let you stay the way you are. I'm going to bring something into your life that is going to shape you, and you're going to be different because of it. So we know we have this great God. We know that he allows and sometimes even causes trials in our lives. And we know that he commands us to rejoice. The only question is whether or not uh, when we have those trials, whether those trials will make us bitter or make us better. And and that really becomes when the ball's in our court. What am I going to do? You're going to have trials. Some of you are in the middle of pretty big trials right now. You're going to have trials. Are those trials going to make you bitter or are those trials going to make you better? Is God going to shape you into the form of Christ that he has in mind? God has a picture in his wallet of you, fully mature. He has this idea of who he wants to make you. And he is working busily to make you the person that you can become. He's doing a work in your life that's very deep and profound when he brings in big trials. So rejoice even when it hurts because your God loves you and he's making you mature. So let's close by just um, bowing our heads and having a little bit of time for silence with God. And as you do, as you bow your head and enter into a spirit of prayer, I just want to ask you, what is God allowing in your life right now that's really hard? And just get your mind on that. Could be anything. But are you going through a trial right now of some kind? Once you get that in your mind, just silently where you're at in prayer, thank him for the trial.
Ask him to help you rejoice in the midst of the trial rather than running to get away from the trial. Ask God to use this difficult time of pain to make you mature so that it's not wasted on you. Ask him to conform you to the image of his son. Father, together we bow before you and we confess that you alone are God, that you are good, that you are holy, that you are all-powerful, that you are sovereign, that you are loving, that every decision you make is perfect, even the ones we don't understand. And God, we know that you rarely explain yourself to us and forgive us for demanding that you do. Help us instead, God, to trust in your character, trust in your nature, that you are busily making us into the people you want us to be, that we might bring you all of the glory as we're conformed into the image of Christ. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.